This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money and surprise, a bonus episode. Yep, unfortunately you still got stuck with me, but the good news is you also are stuck with Andrew Page. G'day mate, how are you? Very good, sir. Very good. Yourself? Uh, I'm very well and I very much appreciate you joining me for this bonus episode, mate. It won't necessarily be a long one, but we wanted to throw it out because we wanted to speak about earnings season in a very particular way. Mm -hmm. So this is not the regular, don't worry, Friday episode still coming, nor is it even the mailbag. That's still coming this week as well. This one we wanted to talk about earnings because we are in earnings season. And we want to talk about how to think about earnings effectively by sector. If you own companies in a given sector, what should you look out for, watch out for, be aware of? How should you digest those particular earnings? A bit of an earnings season primer, if you like. Now, mate, I'm going to start very quickly with my usual earnings season, expectation season comment, and then we'll get into the sectors. Mm-hmm. So here's what I want our listeners to know. When you see a company's earnings that are up, don't expect the share price to rise. If earnings are down, don't expect the share price to fall. Why is that? Well, because it depends on what the market was expecting, hence expectation season. Let's say you own a news agent. Let's say you know there's been construction outside, the road's been ripped up for half of the year. You expect profits to be down, right? Because fewer people came in, less foot traffic, fewer cars. So you're okay, well, okay, I, I think things are going to halve. If that half, and if you're on the news agent, you probably know what's going on, let's be clear, but just stick with me for the analogy. If, however, that 50% fall you expect in profit ends up being only 25%, you're pleasantly surprised. Now, let's take this to the share market. If you own a retail business that has been shut for half the year because of COVID, and you go, oh man, so, so profit's going to be down 40%, I'm sure of it. And, and share, if the market thinks the same, shares will have fallen to account for that. When the numbers come in at minus 20 rather than minus 40, the share market goes, oh, thank God, it's not as, worse, not as bad as we expect. What should happen? The share price should rise. Makes perfect sense, right? So when you think about earnings, same it happens on the other way, by the way. If you're expecting really great news, wow, I, I expect profit to double and it only comes in at plus 80%, only 80% growth, the share price will probably fall. Not because what you expected, of course, or what I expected, but because of what the market as a whole had priced into those shares. The other thing to be mindful of is the outlook statements. So companies will say, hey, guess what? Profits were up 100% last year. And maybe the market expected that. And they say, unfortunately, the last couple of months has been terrible and sales have fallen through the floor. In that case, again, even though past numbers were exactly what the market expected, the outlook might push the share price down because, after all, we're buying next year's profits and the year after when we buy shares, we're not buying last year's. And so that should account for it. Again, same thing, a terrible year and a great outlook. Oh, we're so relieved. Everything's looking great now. You might yet see the share price rise. So keep in mind what the market had previously expected and also what, if any, outlook the company gives to help understand how share prices might move. Any, any general thoughts on that, mate, or anything else generally before we get into the sector stuff? Yeah, it's, it's a really important thing to highlight. You know, prices are always based on future expectation. And the, the, the past is relevant only that it sort of it helps inform that view of the future. So that's exactly why you see these things that seem strange. It's, it's not that the result may have been good or bad in, in light of its own, you know, unique context, but it's more about what it says about the future. And, and sometimes it's not the numbers at all, but some comments from management saying, yeah, here's some really strong numbers, but, oh, you know, the next three months are going to be tough because of X, Y, and Z. And that, that, that'll be enough to, that'll be enough to, to move the, the, the price. Mr. Market's really, you know, he's like a toddler. <laughs> he gets, gets excited very easily, <laughs> loses interest very easily, gets scared very easily. Um, 
you know, and anything, anything that can change that, an offhand mm-hmm, comment, mm-hmm. you know, whatever. So yeah, that's yeah. what, what, you, what I think two things when you're looking at results. One is yeah. you want to get some kind of sense that the expectation you had previously mm-hmm. is more or less on track. Mm-hmm. Um, and secondly, uh, whether there's any need to sort of adjust any of your assumptions going forward. And again, I'm not taking, talking about like changing things to four decimal places or, you know, mm-hmm. having a, having a hyper-specific forecast for next quarter's results or whatever. But in terms of the character of the business and its general expectations for long-term growth, has that changed in any material way? We've, we've said before that I think the, the big question you need to ask is when, when negative things do happen, mm-hmm. the, the key question there is, well, is this structural? I.e., is there something yeah. sort of fundamentally yeah. wrong here, or yeah. is this the normal vicissitudes of the <laughs> life and the market and the economy going up and down and yeah. some higher input costs? Which, which are you can have things that that, that that's bad news, mm. but doesn't doesn't um, doesn't detract from a much brighter future for the business. It's sort of one of those inevitable speed bumps that you come along. It can be hard to distinguish between the two, but yeah, I think, I think you want to, that's, that's what you're looking from these results. Have I been more or less right in my expectation? Mm. And do I need to, do I need to change any expectations from the future? Not why what might happen over the next six, 12 months or so, but you know, does this business still look roughly what I thought it was going to look like in another five years still? Mm-mm. I like it. Mate, let's get to the sector stuff because we're not necessarily going to talk about individual companies, not at all talking about individual companies or even necessarily the specific circumstances of each sector. But we cover different numbers of companies. We talk about different things from time to time. And I thought we'd take just a sweep through every sector of the ASX. We'll do it as defined by the ASX codes, the way they define their sectors, not because it's the only way to do it, just because it's simple and easy for us. But I wanted to, if you own shares in these companies, in these uh, companies in these sectors, I wanted to give you our thoughts on how you might think about those earnings, what you might look for in those earnings to help you understand better whether a result is good or bad, how you should think about growth or declines, uh, and what uh, are the blame or credit you should give management for good or bad performance, particularly given the circumstances that we find ourselves in. So as I said, we'll go for a little while. I'm not sure how long this will be, and we'll just uh, see, see how it pans out, but hopefully a bit of an earnings primer by sector. And we're going to start with one of the both tougher and easier ones. Neither you nor I have investments in the energy sector, and yet that's the first one off the list according to the list I've got here from Comsec. The energy sector, of course, is largely just oil and gas, and gas in its various forms. So if you were to be someone who owned energy stocks, and when those energy companies deliver their earnings in the next, sometime during this current month, what are you looking out for in terms of the things that should matter to you as an investor and the things that shouldn't matter when it comes mm. to the results they're going to hand down? Well, if these kinds of companies, there's two big sort of factors at play. One is the, the sheer volume of coal, oil, gas, whatever it is that they're mm-hmm. shipping mm-hmm. and the prevailing price that they were able to do that. I mean, you, you multiply the volume and the price together, that that, yeah. that gives you your, your top line. Right. Um, but you want to break that down. Have you been producing more or do you get lucky with uh, commodity prices? Um, you know, or, or, or is it the opposite of that? The reason I think largely I stay away from it, and each to their own. I don't, please, mm-hmm. you know, I know a lot of people love this sector and that, that's great. But I think for me, what's it's hard is that it, it is so dependent on these external <laughs> commodity markets and prices, which are just, diab- it's like interest rates, right? Diabolically yeah. hard to sort yeah. of forecast and predict, which is why I just, I don't, don't play that game. But I would, mm-hmm. I want to understand how did, how did sales revenue change and what was the character of that change? Um, and then the other part of the equation is costs as well. 
So one of the things with, with these kinds of companies is that, well, as soon as you spend years and years and billions of dollars, you know, developing a resource, the moment you extract one barrel or liter or whatever sort of volume it is that you're extracting, it becomes a little less valuable because it's, you know, it's by definition a non-renewable resource. So what money are you spending to build the foundation of earnings in the future? And what, is, what does that kind of look like? So I'm, I'm trying to sort of get a view of those kinds of three things um, and make sure that, that yeah, it, it's all it's all reasonably based in their expectation. You made the point recently that you bought some shares. This isn't, this isn't energy per se, but Fortescue mm-hmm. Metals yep. because, you know, their cost of production is what? Take cost them 15 bucks to dig something out of the ground and the price is much higher than that. Now, you know what the price has done. So, you, you know, and you can probably have a reasonable assumption of what they've already said in terms of what the volume is. You can, you can probably have a reasonable view of, of what earnings are, are mm. likely to mm. be uh, like. The real question is, well, what do you, what do you, what do you foresee the longer term demand and how does that translate back to a reasonable mm-hmm. assumption of value, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm trying to, I'm trying to join all of those kinds of dots together. I like that, mate. I like that. Um, yes, I think it's, so, so for me, uh, when it comes to, to energy in particular, um, we kind of crossed over to materials there. So we'll talk about each individually. It's very um, similar characteristics. They are very similar businesses, yeah. aren't they? It, so I would, I would look at a couple of things. The first you want to look at is you want to exclude, well, so here's the thing. If you believe the price is going to be high for a long time, you want to include that price to some degree, but I do think it's kind of a, a bit of a mugs game trying to predict energy prices or, or even commodity yeah. prices. So if you want to, you could do that. I guess we're saying just be careful with that because they tend to be reasonably cyclical over time. And I, I think I said the other day, mate, I've, I did some work on the oil price over the last century and really, really roughly, it's almost doubled, but that's in real terms in that 100 years, right? So the, the growth in volume was huge. The 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 price only really doubled in real terms uh, over about a century. So, you know, just, just be careful about how much you assume is going to continue at whatever the current price is or come back to whatever the current price is. So be mindful of that. Things I'd look at are you want to look at controllable costs. So their ability to uh, develop or expand operations. I would absolutely look for any write-downs, even though they'll tell you they're non-cash write-downs. If you have a business that says, ah, oh, we spent this money, didn't work on anything, so we had to write down the value of the, the asset of the value of that asset, let me spit that out, then that's money they wasted. Your money they wasted. Um, on the on the upside, on the positive side, look at things like the all-in cost and the and the C one cash cost in terms of the cost of getting stuff out of the ground. Because they can't control how much they sell. They can't oh, so they can't control how much they sell. They can't control how much they sell it for. What they can control is how much it costs them to get it out of the ground. And if you look at some of the cash costs, either that are staying stable or are growing more slower than competitors, that to me is a really, really interesting one to look at because it does give you some sense of how, frankly, either how efficient they're operating or more likely just how lucky, fortunate or clever they were to get low cost deposits. Uh, But in any of those cases, that's real and it matters. And we know that if if the commodity price tends to fall, the lowest cost producers tend to keep winning. So look at that. Look at any changes to the cash cost. Compare them mm. with the competitors. Get mm. a sense of how much better or worse they're doing than the other guys. I think it's a useful useful metric. Look at things like entry rates. Um, they are a bit of a soft measure, but they will tell you how much management is caring about the process. So obviously on a personal human level, we don't want anyone dying or being injured on a, on a, on a resources um, extraction you know, effort, whether that's drilling or, or digging. So that, you know, on a purely human effort, of course, we want that to be important. But, I, but it's kind of like, remember the old story, Andrew, about the, the band who, who insisted on 
uh, having the brown M&Ms taken out of the M&M bowl. Uh, mm-hmm. was one of the famous bands. And the story there was, yes, they were being picky. Uh, I'm not even sure if this is a real story where they've made up in, in hindsight to make themselves look smart. But the, the, the stated reason was, after the fact, was we did that because if they cared about our contract enough to read it far enough to take out the brown M&Ms, we assumed they were being really thoughtful and careful with the rest of our contracted terms and we were probably in safe hands if they were our producer or promoter. Yeah. And I would say for me, it's a, again, it's much more, the human element is much more important than the financial element. But if you've got a business that is really focused on that, is bringing, driving down lost time for injury, there are fewer injuries and obviously hopefully no deaths, but fewer deaths. Um, it tells you that hopefully it's a business that if it's caring enough about process to get that right, decent chance going to be operationally pretty efficient by the same token. Yeah, love that. Agree with. Yeah, I, I think what I want to say it was Madonna, but I could be way off base on that. But I yes, a band, but someone. Like yeah, it's probably. a great story. It's a good yeah. story. Exactly. <laughs> JP Morgan, I'm pretty sure. Was, was <laughs> one of the brand names taken out, mate. Um, let's go to. I'm going to skip over industrials because it's a really, really broad area. We might come back to it in a minute, but um, let's go to consumer discretionary stocks now. Mm. For those who are wondering, consumer discretionary, it's reasonably self-explanatory, but they're the things that you buy as a consumer, they don't have to. So often that's things like fashion mostly. Think about it, that's the easiest one on consumer discretionary. Um, plenty of other business inside that, but separated from staples, which we will touch on in a second. So staples are supermarket type products, right? Uh, kind of fuel and, and, and groceries and that kind of thing. Um, consumer discretionary. So in the in that market, business like West Farmers, so that includes Officeworks and Bunnings, uh, Aristocrat Leisure, the gaming business, Tabcorp, another gaming business. So they're in this consumer discretionary space. But everything from uh, Domino's, Harvey Norman, JB Hi-Fi, I'm just running through the list here, Collins Foods, Super Retail Group, uh, AP Eagers, Corporate Travel, Flight Centre. So you're getting an idea of what these sort of businesses are. Uh, Andrew, if you were going to look at the results of some of these businesses, what highlights or lowlights would you be looking for? What adjustments might you make? Oh, man. So consumer discretionary, um, uh, it, it is it is one of the most cyclical kind of spaces, you know, uh, being discretionary, people will defer spending at the first hint of, of trouble. Um, and again, that's just that's just going to happen for the best retailers and the worst retailers alike. So it, mm-hmm. it, it, it comes back again to, okay, if it's a bad result or even if it's a good result, how much was that just a, a, a consequence of the circumstances, the operating environment of the time? The hard part with these is to sort of look through that, through the cycle, as they say, and try and see what what does that look like um, on average. So gen- generally speaking, like with the, the pandemic is a, a good example there. So there was a lot of com- there was a few I shouldn't say a lot. There was a few of these sort of consumer discretionary stocks that had invested heavily in their mm. distribution, warehousing, websites, these omni-channel kind mm. of models mm. where they really not because they pivoted quickly to the new online lockdown sort of reality, but because they'd made a lot of investments beforehand, and they did really really well in that context. Um, even though their in-store sales for a lot of these ones were really just whacked around, which 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 dragged them down overall, but I still see a business that's just like, well, I can't I can't fault I can't fault uh, JB Hi-Fi if people you know were just in a um, felt felt the, the wealth effect wasn't as strong and they didn't feel like going out and buying as much stuff. Mm. Um, but if the business is overall still sort of delivering within the context of that economic environment. That's that's a big tick for me. So I'm I'm trying to contextualize the earnings results mm, mm. and and distinguish what is what is uh, the 
the credit that management deserves and mm. what is the credit that just the general economic situation yeah. Yeah, yeah, deserves. Yeah. And yeah. this is, by the way, I say it rolls off the tongue easily, doesn't it? Gosh, it's hard mm, though. Mm, mm. Um, you can have terrible management with, you know, the, the, the business just goes really well for a little while because it's just at the right place, right? And the right time and it just, it can't do anything kind of wrong. So- uh, what? How do you do that? I think a lot of it is is being very familiar with the story. It's not just reading the latest results, but reading the last few years of, of results. What have management been saying mm, to expect? Mm, What's mm. their strategy? Have they been doing what what they said they were going to do? And then contextualize that with the with the current environment. Mm. I think for by and large, the market, like you know, Flight Center would be a consumer discretionary stock, and. Um, a lot of people were pretty reasonable with with COVID in the sense that okay, this is this is this is not Screw Turner's fault, <laughs> uh, COVID, um, and and they will contextualise yep. those kinds of results as opposed to something like oh, no, I'll pick on poor old Myers again, you know, or was, <laughs> where it's sort of like it's a very there's a very, very I would say very strong structural decline in that industry mm-hmm. with the very the raison d'être their business model is just no longer. As relevant, let's say, not not completely irrelevant, and that's that's a very different context through a very different lens through which to judge the numbers. I I agree. I think um, I'm going to add to that. Just when I look at discretion, I'm going to be super super careful to think through the real base earnings of these businesses. And we've talked about this before, but if if our job as investors is to buy a company. So, so let's take it back. When we buy shares, we buy shares based on the future earnings of that business. And we try and make, we try and pay a price that is a cheap price, an expensive price relative to those future earnings. Those future earnings then have to be estimated somehow. Now, a lot of people just use the, the trailing PE. <laughs> you know, last year they earned hundred bucks. Uh, I'm going to pay a thousand bucks. Therefore, I'm buying 10 times earnings. That's not necessarily terrible for a flat business, but you have to do a lot more than that to get it right. Everyone knows the PE. Mm. You've got to work out, are the earnings going to go up or down? Um, how quickly, all that kind of stuff to work out whether the price you're paying is a good price. It's even harder with these businesses because almost every single business in this space, if I look through the list, I'm, I'm literally eyeballing now thinking, which business hasn't been impacted over the past two years, positively or negatively, by mm. COVID? So how do you know, if I think about Domino's, right? I own shares. What are the, what are the, what are Domino's earnings likely to be next year? You can't say last year plus a bit because some of last year's earnings were probably benefited by the fact we didn't go out, so we just added you know a mouthful of Domino's instead. The year before that, the year before that, and so you try and think about. For me, it's just trying to work through what is the underlying earnings power of these businesses. Now we can't know for sure. There is it's impossible to know for sure. But try and think through, hey, did Crown suffer or benefit last year? It suffered pretty badly. Did Webjet suffer or, or gain last year? Yep, suffered pretty badly. I own Webjet shares. Did um, uh, Breville Group suffer? Yeah, th- that, and we've got to try and make those mm. adjustments mentally. So I'm going to be looking for some sense of how much of the growth or decline is COVID-related, how much will that, of that growth will disappear, how much of that decline will reappear, once business, once life gets back to normal and try and think that through. So for me, mate, that's the, they're, they're the for discretion, on top of the stuff you've already said, which you covered beautifully, so I'm, I'm just trying to add to what you said. That's the way I'm kind of going to look at some of these businesses and just try and work out and be careful of not being sucked into, hey, that level of profit's always going to be acceptable or achievable, sorry, or man, this business obviously sucks because sales are down. There is something in between. A good example here, again, is with JB Hi-Fi. So when the pandemic first hit and we all had to work from home, everyone mm-hmm. ran out and bought, Laptops and desks, and you know, yeah, all of the, the right. home office yes, has got yeah, a serious, yeah. you know, a makeover. And 
you know, earnings. So, so th- these guys on a per share basis were earning about two dollars fifteen per share in twenty nineteen. Mm-hmm. By the way, it was only a dollar fifty back in twenty sixteen. So it's been an incredible uh, period of growth. But then in twenty twenty. 2020, it went to 273 and then 2021 to 444. Like the growth, it just hockey sticked. And, you know, so on its own, you look at the the consistency and the magnitude of growth and you think, wow, what a company. And yet the it's on a PE of 11. Like what the hell's going on there? I actually think this is an instance of the market yeah. being very sensible in the sense that they, they recognize, although that was unquestionably a, a very, very strong result, it was it was uh, due to factors that are unlikely to be repeated, unless we all decided a second to add a second and third office and have a yep. third and fourth <laughs> laptop. And you know, it's it's sort of like we just brought From all of these kind of, yeah. of stuff yeah. forward. So the market yeah. in that instance, you could say there's another reality out there where this thing's trading on a PE of 35 because mm-hmm. the market's gone. Wow, look at the incredible earnings growth, and there's still so much further to go. But they, mm-hmm. they the, the market hasn't. And that's an exa- another good example of, of exactly what we're talking about here. Yes, good or bad results, but in context. Yes, keep it in context. Um, and also, I, the other thing I, I'm going to look at for consumer discretionary, mate, is the online trend. Yeah, um, yeah, I, yeah. I, I fully. If you, yeah. you, and it's not just the it's not just the pure e-commerce guys, right? It's literally the likes of Premier Investments that owns Smigel, Peter Alexander, and Just Jeans. Their online sales are growing phenomenally. Um, even yep. Harvey Norman owns shares. JB Hi-Fi. Um, those, you know, the, the online bits of their business are growing really quickly. And I think the longer term, so COVID aside, the longer term question for many of us is what does this business look like in X years time? On one hand, you say, hey, if you're growing online sales still at 20, 30, 40%, that's great. On the other hand, by the way, it's worth mentioning Premier Investments. I think we've talked about this. Um, they, they're closing four Sydney CBD stores because the rents are too high. Yeah. And that's, you know, Solly Lou is pretty, pretty you know, he's got his own business. He runs it like a fiefdom and, and he's pretty vocal about this stuff. But he's also kind of saying, online is taking off. I don't need this many stores. And I'm not going to pay that rent for you anymore. And that's a really interesting one because if you think about how does JB Hi-Fi morph into a business with a store or a shop in every corner to a business with three shops in your your shire or, or, or municipality or town um, because they don't need that many anymore. How do they shrink that store count, for example? Mm. Um, there's big questions about some of these guys and how they do it, whether they do it well, whether they do it properly, as well as the upside of the online sale. So looking at that growth, uh, also, by the way, compare some of that. So if you've got a retailer that's, even if it's going to bounce back from COVID, but its online sales are still reasonably ordinary, I don't know anyone who thinks that online sales can be lower in five years than they are today. And so, yeah, if, you're, if your company isn't making that move strongly, successfully, have a think about that as well. Yep, yep. And, and as I, I, there was a lot of talk with COVID and this big rise in demand for online, you know, CEOs out there going, oh, well, okay, we're going we're gonna to pivot to this and this is what <laughs> yeah. we're going to do. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, and while that makes a lot of sense, yeah. the problem I had with it, it was very reactive. Yes. And the the companies that did really well, I think Accent Group's a good example of this. I think Adairs is a good example of this. I think there's a Mm. few sort of retailers out there that they just found themselves really well prepared, not because they had any vision on what what was around the corner, but that they just saw this as a longer term Mm. trend and this was something that needed investment. These these investments take years to build out and play out and, you know, get get going and stuff. So they were the ones that did particularly well on that online model. So it's sort of... Yes, you can put things in context and it's nice to hear management sort of finally acknowledging this kind of stuff. But the real mm. the real 
ones to pay attention to were the ones that sort of had the vision to think and plan longer term in the first place. Again, pick on the department stores, right? You know, they 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 did go online, <laughs> but man, yep. they yep. took their time and they didn't do it very well. And they're still trying to sort of figure that out and do it properly. Um, Can I say though, mate, if you haven't looked recently, David Jones is doing a phenomenal job online at the moment, apparently numbers wise. And I can't remember the exact numbers, but it's a really large share of their sales now are actually coming through their online portal. And I want to say it's like 30-something. It's a, it's a really, really impressive number. Now, as I said about JB Hi-Fi and others, you've got to work out what you do with your stores when they – because, you know, some of that sale comes from other people. Some of that sale is just cannibalizing yourself, right? So what do you do it's with like a prime say, yeah. CBD location or a, or a big Westfield location on huge square meterage when you've cannibalized your own business and or someone else's hopefully or at least stopped the decline, whichever way you want to look at that, it's kind of the same thing. Um, it, it, big questions to ask. <sighs> Yeah, 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 definitely. I mean, part of that is 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 the online uh, presence growing, but also the other line shrinking. So yeah. <laughs> it's, exactly, you've got yeah, to, that's right. You do yeah. know what I mean? It's like it's the, great. The that's is bigger by definition. Yeah. Although, but don't you think it's also fair that they just drag their heels forever? So it's oh, finally totally. they've gotten their Absolutely. act. To, you know, oh, yeah. ostensibly they're getting their act together. But geez, yeah. it's twenty twenty two, guys. The internet is not a new thing. Online, they're literally twenty years too late. Yeah, they are twenty yeah. years too late for this kind of stuff, and it's kind of. Yeah. Like they just, they just never, even if they continue to have some success there, it's, they're never going to be seen mm-hmm. as one of the great online retailers. Yeah. And they had every opportunity to be that given the competitive position and strength that they found themselves in earlier on. So, yeah, mm-hmm. I, I, I just, I just wanted to make that, that note. You're right to sort of call out the online angle when it comes to mm-hmm. consumer discretionary. Just, just give, just give the real kudos to the, to the management teams that were, that were thinking long term and making preparations well in advance. Motley Fool Money. For more, subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash listener. Mate, let's move to consumer staples then. I'll go first this time just for the sake of not having to ask you the first time each time. Um, maybe I've got nothing useful to add and you can benefit, uh, improve on it. So let's go with that. Uh, consumer staples, we're talking about here the, the Woolies and Coles, the Met Caches of the world. Um, I'll click on this link now. What have we got? We've got treasuries in there, uh, A2 Milk. Elders, not exactly consumer staples, but maybe it is if it's meat. Uh, Grain Corp's in there, Costa Group, the, the veg, fruit and veg mob. Plenty of plenty of companies in here. Um, so I'm looking at this, these guys and thinking through how they responded to COVID. Uh, we know that Woolies, for example, uh, early this year, late last year, announced they had $150 million of COVID costs in their P&L. They had to pay everything between uh, freight, uh, staff not available, um, casuals, extra extra signage and, and protective stuff required in stores, testing of staff at distribution centres and, and supermarkets, massive, massive, massive incremental costs. $150 million, I wouldn't have thought it was near that big, mate. I was, I was genuinely surprised. I mean, Woolies is a massive business with, I, I think they're probably one of the largest, not the largest private employer in the country. So, I'd, you know, again, you expect large numbers, but that was big. So I'm here looking through that to see uh, so see what that's cost them. I am also going to try and separate out a bit like consumer discretionary, the benefit these guys got from eating at home. You know, Woolies and Coles had sales growth of double digit percentages, which is never, uh, it's just, it's, I won't say it's impossible because it happened, uh, but it was pure um, COVID related, right? Now, some of us will have decided we like cooking at home. We've decided to bake our own bread. We'll keep doing that. Others of us will say, thank God <laughs> the restaurants are open. I'm going back out and getting amongst it. So we should expect Woolies and Coal sales and uh, Metcasher sales potentially to even fall maybe. 
uh, as year on year as they go back towards what were more reasonable levels. So that's very, very possible. Uh, some of those other companies, massive, massive range there. But COVID costs are probably the, the greatest common denominator across that group. Um, also look at things like cost inflation for some of the suppliers in that group. We've got Bega, we've got Costa, we've got Elders and Grain Corp. United Malt Group, Ingham's, the chicken company's already announced uh, some cost inflation there and some issues with staffing. So just trying to separate out the reported and maybe not even strongly reported, maybe the unreported uh, costs of responding to dealing with COVID because I think that's going to be a, a big one for these guys. Um, look at things too like traffic, foot traffic, to the extent they report it. Try and separate out again. I'll talk about volume and uh, price. I'm going to mention that on tomorrow's podcast. So have a listen to that. But if you separate out volume and price, just try and work out are there more people using their services? Are they going to continue? Now, some people like Ingham's will supply supermarkets, but also Red Rooster or KFC or, you know, so they're not necessarily a one-channel player. Maybe that's where there's some benefits, same with Bega to some degree. Um, but just be mindful of the potential impact. Careful of paying even reasonable multiples of last year's sales and profit because if they're not sustainable, if they do fall back or simply stop growing, if you overpay for some of these slow growers, very, very, very hard to make that back. Yeah, Over yeah. You, that, that's the way I think about consumer staples is that you've got to – there's some wonderful businesses in there. Mm. Woolies is a great business. God, it's just one of the strongest. You, you can yeah. guarantee that it's around in 10, 20 years' time. <laughs> yeah. Um, but at the same time, it's 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 a very 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 mature business. Mm. You know, they can they there'll be periods where it's sort of ahead of Coles and you know others sort of come in and whatever. But it's mm. it, it it's it's never going to be something that grows consistently at a double digit rate. Like it might have a good year here and there, but it's just mm. it's just not going to happen. And so it just means that you have to pay particular attention to to value. Like it's really easy to overpay for a slow growing company. If you've got mm. something that's a small technology company that's growing earnings at 50% per year, you, you can be pretty loose on, on your valuation because, <laughs> yeah, you know right. what I mean, There's yep. it, 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 growth, as you, you're fond of saying, covers a lot of sins and it, it really does. With these guys, that's not the case. I've always – I mean, Woolies is like 45 to $35 near enough in the last few months alone. And, and despite being a wonderful business, it's still on a price earnings multiple of 30 you know, their growth earnings multiples at a period where everyone's expecting us to go into higher inflation. It's, it seems, it strikes me as um, still ambitious in terms of, of the price. So I'm, I'm, I'm much more, reason- I guess what I'm saying is when it comes to looking at these kinds of companies, particularly the big mature ones, I, I think that the, yes, quality is definitely there for a lot of them. You just have to have really realistic expectations on growth. And I would I would sort of look through a lot of these kind of stuff. You're right. All the things you pointed out are worth looking at to get that context mm. for the current year. But I think any reasonable person would probably say, well, I don't know. Yes, Woolies is around in the year 2032. But on average, it's, it's per share earnings are probably going to grow anywhere between sort of three and a half, six percent right. per annum. Yeah. You're, in, you're yeah. in that kind of range. Yep. It's not going to be- from a lower base too, Matt. That's the other thing, right? If, if yeah. last year's profit isn't sustainable, if it falls back 10%, that 3% growth you get per year might actually be another three years growth to get back to where we started. You know, yep. I'm not saying that's the likely outcome, but it's possible. So if you're paying if you're paying a multiple today's price or last year's profit rather than next year or the year after's profit, you might end up paying meaningfully too much. Uh, and you can do really – I think that's the that's the thing. If someone was to buy shares in Woolies today and mm. pop them in the bottom drawer for 10 years, you're making money, right? You're making much more money than you would ever make in a bank account. Mm. But you're probably – I would – you know, they're getting a 2.5% yield at the moment. There's some franking credits on top of that. Throw in some sort of – let's be – 
you know, mm. reasonably optimistic, some mid-single-digit type growth, it's a decent return, you know. It's, mm. it's may, maybe sort of getting around that 8% sort of upper-single-digit up type return. It's very, very decent. Mm. Um, but that's got to be your expectation though, right? It's, it's, not, it's, not, it's not an afterpay or whatever. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> these, these kinds of things. And, and, and I think the time for me on these kinds of companies mm. is when it just gets so ridiculous. When you've got something where I'm getting – and mm, by the mm. way, this has happened a lot of times with the company just to keep picking on Woolies where <laughs> I, can, I can buy this thing with a 4.5% yield, which is near enough 7 and a bit just on dividends alone. It's like any growth is a bonus, even if they just keep, keep paying that out until it's only – that's a very, very mm. reliable, attractive uh, uh, return. At the yeah. moment – Two and a half bit percent, you know. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I guess I guess all I'm saying is, in terms of when it comes to earnings season, you've you've got to have more grounded expectations in terms of growth for some of these bigger players. That they're, they're limited in what they'll mm. be able to do. Mm-mm. Mate, let's move to healthcare. This is a fascinating one because, and I'm gonna I'm gonna say outright. Um, I think you need to be really, really careful with healthcare because it's such a very, very broad range of companies that are made up in this in this mob. So Ebos Group, the pharmaceutical wholesaler, we've got Promedicus we've talked about before on the, on the show, uh, Helios, the diagnostics mob, uh, we've got Immugene, we've got Nanasonics, we've got Ansel we've talked about, Telex Pharmaceuticals, Clinuvel Pharmaceuticals, Australian Ocidium. Clinical Labs. It gets and those yeah that's just the, that's just the, the mid cap guys. Yep. Um, there's there's just hundreds and hundreds of them, and it does it goes everywhere from big public hosp- private hospital operator down to the tiniest tiniest biotech. So while it's one category, and rightly so, it probably there's probably not no single easy solution. Of course, CSL the big dog in this space, ResMed, Sonic Healthcare, plenty of others besides. Um, so my I I'm not even sure how you want to start tackling this, other than I'll just preface it by saying it's a really, really mixed bag of companies. Uh, you know, so we can't possibly hope to have a single metric or a single couple of metrics that covers everything. Go on. It, it's an excellent point. I meant to make it earlier, in fact, is that yeah, these these sector classifications can get pretty silly. It's even more mm-hmm. silly in technology, I reckon. Um, but even before, let's take consumer staples. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned elders and Woolworths in the same breath. You know, vastly exactly, different, exactly, exactly. vastly, yeah, vastly yeah, different yeah. businesses. So, yeah. You're right, but it's also it's it's true to greater or lesser degrees, but in all in all kinds of sectors. Mm. Um, so yes, that's the first thing to note. So uh, mm. within within healthcare, um, this is this is I think healthcare is interesting at the moment because health, as a general rule, I think has been a pretty slow adopter of software and new technologies like the 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 purchase decisions made by big institutions like hospitals and that very bureaucratic long tender processes, very slow to change. Doctors are still using fax machines, right? And I'm sure we've got a few doctors listening that are out there. It's, it's been one of the slowest up, uh, 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 adopters of, of new, I say new technology, like technology that's been around for ages. Pages are still used in a lot of hospitals and stuff. So what I think is interesting here is that we've seen these structural shifts happen in a lot of industries. I think it's still got a long way to run in healthcare. And I think that's what makes it there's, – there's a couple of companies in there which are actually quite exciting because of that. Mm. Promedics, as you mentioned before, is they've done so insanely well because what they offer is a new way of doing what has sort of often been done with, with a, a huge number of uh, – of, of, uh, there's a lot of wind in their sails for, for a whole bunch of other reasons as well. So what you, what you get there is you're actually 
looking year to year to sort of see what's sort of changed. But but some of these trends are, are going to be decades long and very, very long winning, long running as well. So there's a long runway as, as they might say. So to, to, to get a bit more specific within that healthcare space, I think within the technology healthcare space, within within that subset of companies that are beyond just sort of hope and blue sky that have actually got a product mm, out in the market mm. with traction and good levels of adoption. Mm. Again, the market tends to notice these things and some of the prices will be high as a result. But mm. as I said before with, with Google, some of these things can run a long way. And I would, I would say there's some – what I'm looking for is to see that that longer-term story is still playing out. Um, <laughs> There's thing, things things can go very well for some of these companies, and yeah. it feels like you've missed the boat. I, I feel as though some of them will 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 continue to run for a long time. I think that's right. I, my healthcare concern, mate, is actually the expectation of it being a so-called safe haven sector. Oh, yeah. um, both because people assume that these businesses are more stable revenue and sales-wise because they're healthcare and healthcare seems to have this sense that it's always kind of, you know, we're the same number of people, same amount of healthcare, maybe slow increases over time, but a reasonably stable demand, all that kind of stuff. That's kind of true for some of these players, as we've, as we've already said, and as you said nicely, there's a massive, massive group of them and they're, they're not even close to the same. Um, so, so I just, yeah, you know, I think there's there's something about just being careful. Uh, Ramsey Healthcare is one that, uh, you know, I had higher expectations of. We actually recommended it in Share Advisor a few years ago. It's just been a or very, very ordinary performer. Hasn't lost a squid, but it's just been really, really pedestrian and a waste. Um, that was a mistake. Um, even CSL. So here's the here's the thing about CSL, mate. The P is whatever it is, 40 something. Um, here's just the Comsec blurb, and I haven't checked the data, but let's assume it's right. Over the last three years, is the quote, earnings growth at CSL has averaged 6.14% annually. Mm. And I'm going to click on the little link, go to the PE of CSL, which is 42 times. Now, mm. I, I can't contextualise either of those numbers. There might be hidden numbers, normalisation, something else going on, and so I'm not going to draw a straight line. But, man, I, I don't know about you, 40 times earnings is a lot to pay for a business growth at 6%, even if it is considered a safe haven stock. Um, so I'm going to I'm going to suggest here, the, my biggest concern is that people might buy these ones without really interrogating the fundamentals. So if there's something to look out for earnings season, it's actually the earnings, it's actually the performance. And ask yourself, really, based on this, is the share price worth it? Am I am I assuming too much? Am I using some of those? And we all do it. Um, those kind of, you know, uh, what are the what are they call the standbys? Just the, you know, the usual suspects. You say, well, healthcare is always safe, so therefore dot dot dot. Or you know, CSL is a great business, so therefore dot dot dot. I would say to people, if you're looking at CSL, ResMed, Sonic, uh, Fisher & Paykel, Ramsey, which is the big caps, Cochlear, just make sure the performance justifies the price. Don't give it a free pass just because of the expectation you have it, or of it, sorry, or the market has of it, that somehow it's going to always be true. And remember, it's more volatile. Um, with this one too, specifics, careful of diagnostic businesses because if and when the amount of diagnostic work being done for COVID goes away, uh, think about rat tests, PCR tests, whatever else they're doing, um, that will hurt their earnings. No, it doesn't make them bad investments. Just be mindful. Earnings could be meaningfully lower in future. Um, think about the impact on private healthcare, uh, private hospitals in particular, and other uh, diagnostic work on the other side. People who didn't go to the doctor for cancer checks, for example, who may go back when that thing's normalising. So again, the very common theme through all these, be careful of normalisation. Make sure you understand the real base of earnings and sales and make sure you have a really strong sense of what you think will happen. No one can know for sure. What you think will happen next in some of these businesses, don't don't get caught believing that declines are permanent or the growth or some of that growth is necessarily permanent in my view. 
Yep. You was I'm struggling to think of the name. Very small company involved with sort of COVID tests and this kind of stuff. Got very the Australian hot. Clinical Labs might have been it. Yes, and and it's just silly though because I mean, there's if there's these the that what what you're seeing for a lot of these kinds of companies mm. is huge levels of demand and not much supply. And if you mm. remember back to yes. your high school economics, <laughs> exactly. you know, whenever demand exceeds supply, that's that's higher mm-hmm. prices, right? So their margins are just yep. exceptional. But they're not developing, you know, um, hyper advanced institutional scanning technology or something like that. It's yeah, something right, that right. a lot of people will go. There is nothing. Mm-hmm. The thing with capitalism is, whenever super profits are being made, it attracts competition <laughs> like nothing else. Because everyone else looks over there and goes, "Wow, well we can do that. Charge ten percent less and still make an eighty percent margin." And then someone yeah. goes, "Well, we can do that too." But yeah. you know, yeah. we're making yeah. masks here. It's not hard, yeah. you know. And yeah. uh, but we'll take a fifty percent margin. And it just it, it normalizes things. So what? Yes, it's it's great that companies will have short term benefits, but it's more about mm. sort of looking through that and say, can they sustain? A that level of growth in terms of units, and mm. B the pricing that they're able, they're, they're currently enjoying on that at the moment. So you know, chemists, <laughs> we know what's happening in the news at the moment. Some chemists mm. are selling rat tests for forty bucks a pop. You know, they cost five bucks to make or thereabouts exactly. type exactly. thing. And and yep. and I yep. guarantee yep. they 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 are they are a specialist kind of product, but they're mm-hmm. not that hard to make. And there's yeah. a lot of different varieties out there. And I, although we're having a huge shortage, just do you remember at the start of the pandemic, you couldn't get your hands on hand sanitizer and you couldn't right. get your hands on, on, on face masks. Mask, yeah. Yep. And they were super expensive. And <laughs> what happened? Well, supply, the demand still stayed high, yeah. uh, but A, that demand is going to wane over time eventually. But yeah. more to the point, a whole bunch of supply came onto the market. So you, so I think that's a very important thing to sort of to, to look at. Mm. And just quickly on mm. CSL, I, I love CSL. I think it's one of the, the, the great Aussie success stories. Definitely one of the highest quality businesses on the ASX, but I've been nowhere near it for the past two years because, as you say, it's just sort of like, man, this thing got to what three hundred and fifty bucks at one stage. It's just sort of, uh, mm-hmm. and and for a, and what is it? This, this is a company that is talking about being harder to grow as you get larger. One hundred twenty-five billion dollar company, you know, eighth yeah. of a trillion dollars type <laughs> thing. It's yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Again, we're, we're, we're one thing theme that just keeps coming up here is that context matters, and that's that's the real take home I think from it. That's what, that's what we're trying to provide is some of those yeah. contextual answers by sector to try and think about what to allow for uh, when you're trying to make sure those numbers represent something useful, or uh, when management are trying to convince you everything's okay, uh, the, the red flags to look out for. It's what it's what Howard Marks distinguishes between first order thinking and second order thinking. So yeah. masks and rats is a great example. You know, it's like oh, everyone's buying these at the moment. And this isn't it great. It's like yeah, that's it's a hundred percent true. But think think what happens next. This is a dynamic system. There is there is a going to be a reaction from competitors, the market, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. So you've got to you've got to look through all of that and understand the true picture of what's going on. That that's where you, that's where you get an edge. Yep, well done. Mate, let's go to financials. We're talking about banks and insurance companies predominantly here. Um, these are businesses that shouldn't necessarily be difficult to understand. Uh, I'm looking at financials and I'm going to be looking at things like the net interest margin. That's effectively the profit margin, um, calculated slightly differently, but basically takes into account the cost of all their funding, the amount of money they can lend it out for, and they take their costs out in between. So it's it's effectively the net profit margin, but in in finance they have different different numbers to allow for that. So that's the one I'm going to be most looking at. Mm. But in that context, the other one is their cost base. 
We know that margins are and probably will remain under pressure. There may be a bit of margin relief if and when rates go up. So maybe there's some upside there potentially. But I think for me, the the cost-based number is the number that matters more than any. It's a bit like mining to some degree. You know, it's in a competitive market. You can't control pricing of your loans that much. What you can control is your costs. Mm. And we know that banks are trying to get costs out. Um, you've got to be mindful of that. They're all trying to do it. And so there's no easy way to say, well, obviously X, Y, Z, um, because they're all going to be trying to get costs down. But it, I really think if I was going to invest in a financial company today and I was going to do it for market beating returns, income might be different because you don't really need that much of a gain if you're just doing it for the franking, the frank credits, um, the franked dividends. Man, let me spit that out. But uh, yeah, so costs almost entirely, mate. I'm also mm. looking on a financial level at the change in their bad debts uh, expenses and the provisions because that's where there's been really, really this is not this is COVID related actually, but not because of demand. Banks took massive, massive, massive provisions in the worst of the COVID downturn because they were freaked out that house prices might crash. It didn't happen. So you had a massive underreporting of profits in 2020 and overreporting of profits in 2021 because when you put back that provision, you unwind it, you reverse it, you actually put money onto the balance sheet, on the P&L. It, it records as a profit, believe it or not, um, just the release of that provision. So it's a really messy one to start with, but cost, actual costs, literal costs, and the change in those provisions, because if you don't, you won't have, they're not ongoing, right? They, they happen as a one-off. And then you gotta look at the underlying business. So again, context, but again, also look at the underlying earnings power when they stop playing silly buggers with provisions. Now, by the way, it's legal and appropriate, but it just, it's messy. When they stop making those changes, What's left is the question I'll be asking myself and how quickly are they getting costs out of the system? What about you, mate? Yep, net, net interest margin is is huge. The other thing is, again, it comes back to volume. So what, what a mm. bank is selling is is money. That's their, yes. that's their product. So the margin is important as it is for all businesses, but so is the quantity as well. So mm. you, you would, uh, uh, the ideal environment for a bank is when there's a increased demand for credit. <laughs> and yeah. you're able to, through managing your costs effectively, enjoy an attractive margin on that. Um, so I'm trying to say this without being too prejudicial or Go on. putting biases in. Or that, Go but on. I, I feel as though the the appetite for housing credit has been insatiable, and I just mm. wonder. I wonder how. F- how far we can we can continue to <laughs> extend past trends. Yeah. And what's interesting about that is as well is like, let's stop talking about the future and what could or might happen. Mm. Let's look at the past and what did happen. I mean, anyone I would think would have to have their head read if they said it wasn't a phenomenally attractive time to be a bank in Australia mm. with property prices doing what they've done. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Do you know? And yet NAB- NAB hasn't gone anywhere. It's actually making less money today on a per share basis than it was in 2013. Its dividends have come back a good 30, 40% over that time. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they they just never, if you if you look at the, the chart of it, it's just flat to down. Yeah, it's awful. <laughs> it's like, it's awful. okay, you do that in that environment? <laughs> yeah. Like, no, again, I don't want to say when or if or how, but yeah. like if there is some kind of um, a less a lower demand for credit, and mm. if they're unable to to maintain any reasonable margin, right, right. like, geez, it, it doesn't seem I, – I, I find them pretty unappealing at this point in the cycle mm. and have for a while. And I feel as though I've been justified in having that view because, you know, as while, the, while the banks have been insane over like a 30-year period, mm. over the last 10 years, it's actually been pretty ordinary. Yeah, agreed. Mate, let's, let's look at tech and let's roll in tech and communications together. 
Now, this again is a hard one. You've got your really, really big tech, you know, the usual suspects. Um, you've got Zero, and you've got Wise Tech, and you've got uh, Square, obviously, the new the new shares or block now uh, that bought Afterpay and Computer Share. In communication, you've got the big three classified businesses and Telstra. Uh, throw them together, and you kind of you're getting, you're getting pretty close to what combines or makes up those two. This is going to be acronym central, mate. We're going to have. Cost of acquisition, we're going to have lifetime value. We're going to have lots of good stuff. Here. AR, net, uh, net retention, yeah. exactly. Yeah, yeah. Average yeah. retention rate, annual recurring revenue and net contract value or average contract value, whatever it is. Let's, uh, let's try and break it down though. Those things are all true. But what are you looking for from these businesses? What metrics will will hopefully stand out and tell you whether or not they're worth at least taking a bit more, paying a bit more attention to and maybe assessing some valuation? I think the real thing that's changed in recent times is there's the market was previously last year just very focused on top line growth mm-hmm. and and potential size yeah, of the market. Actually. So that that's all that mattered. Yep. And what the focus is sort of again this narrative has shifted now to more about well what are the actual cash flows like? So the the, the promise of all of these businesses is <laughs> yeah. We will bleed cash, uh, you know, happily for years Mm -hmm. and years and years. And we can do that because our share price is really high so we can raise money really. There's plenty of people who will give us more cash to keep burning and burning because they they feel as though longer term that'll be justified. And I think sensibly that that has changed for – that'll still be true for a lot of companies, but it's Mm -hmm. also not going to be true for a lot of companies as well. So the ones that have been really, really hard hit – I've been the ones like, um, you know, Dubber might be a good example. These guys do call recordings. Their, their top line growth has just been like a hockey stick. It's been yeah. phenomenal. And yet mm. they're losing more money today on a profit basis than they <laughs> ever right. have before. That's right. and, and the market's now, the market's, I think, rightly more turning its attention to that. I think people are, are pretty sanguine with with losses and that where they feel as though these are, this is all being made, building an investment for longer term. But a lot of it's, a lot of these scaling advantages that are, that are sort of touted are just not coming mm, to fruition. Mm. So what I'm looking for absolutely with technology is is high growth. Yes, that's really great. Right. And that's what the market's been looking at for ages. But I think mm. you also, this, is, this has always been the case, even though the market's more focused on it now, you should also look at, you know, um, are they actually going to hit break even in some reasonable time? How much yeah. extra dilution yeah. and raising are they going to need to do? You know, it's like, okay, we get it, guys, but it, like, give us some kind of sense that this is actually going to be mm-hmm. a reasonably mm-hmm. profitable business um, it, it, without having to wait another 50 years and being diluted by 90%. So that's, yeah. that's what I'm really looking at here. Yep, top line is great, but I think, I think all the line items between the top and bottom line are something you need <laughs> to really carefully focus on. Yeah, I agree. I think it's. I think it's absolutely right. I, I do think uh, that. Yeah, generally speaking, if you have a reasonable business model, top line growth is the almost only game in town. I would also look at cash burn. Um, look at how yeah. much they're losing in cash per quarter, half year, and then work at how much cash they've got left. Because if shares stay low, they're going to have to sell a whole lot more shares or accept a whole lot less cash, um, and it's going to make some you know, kind of knife-edge businesses even more precarious and some that weren't necessarily knife-edge businesses all of a sudden more precarious in terms of not just their survival but your potential return because if they have to, let's just pick an arbitrary you know, extreme number, if they're going to issue twice as many shares as they would have had to a year ago because the yeah. shares have halved, 
then all of a sudden you're getting diluted twice as badly each time they do that. And mm. that can, you know, the, the, the biotech company that finally, this isn't biotech, but the biotech company that finally finds the great breakthrough, if it's been 25 years and they've diluted you by 100 to 1, the, the chance you're going to make any, any decent money after that, let alone the fact the opportunity cost of waiting 20 years for that money, the, the odds get longer and longer and the returns get lower and lower the more shares they have to issue. So just be careful of that as well. Yep. Yep. Mate, let's um let's finish off. Uh, got a couple to go. Let's do utilities quickly. These are things like gas pipelines and that kind of stuff. The businesses mm. that are the backbone, sort of about APA Group for those people who know that it's a it's a gas pipeline company. Um, Origin Energy's in this space. So let's think about energy and and uh, electricity. Uh, Contact Energy, AGL, uh, Infratil, Mercury New Zealand. Lots of kind of Osnet uh, again pipeline infrastructure. People who get stuff to us with massive amounts of assets. Normally regulated-ish returns. What are you looking for in the utility space, mate? So, again, this is a, a sector where the, just the, the growth is never going to be huge. <laughs> yes, so, yeah. um, you know, the, mm-hmm. you, what, what you do see here is big, big changes in things like the cost space if they're building a new power station or they're doing these, yeah. these, these big CapEx things, which yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, a real, there's, a, there's a real difference when you look at a, these kinds of companies' cash flow statement versus their income statement mm. um, because what happens, a lot of these expenses sort of get depreciated over, which is appropriate, by the way, over long periods of time. Yep. But, but some, you, you'll see some of these guys sort of coming up to periods where you know there's going to be very heavy investment required, very long-term sort of payoff, and mm. it'll all work out pretty well in the end. Mm. But I, mm. I'm, I'm, I'm looking, I, I guess, at all of that. But I think the other thing that's being a bit more tricky with some of these guys is this, we are in a structural shift in this industry. Yeah. And, you know, the, the, the person who owned all these coal-fired generators mm. and for years mm. and years and years, big big upfront costs, but then just mm. sort of very steady, reliable, dependable, recession-proof sort of flow of earnings after mm. that. It's it's a little bit different this time because things things are sort of changing there. So I guess I'm... I've got an eye on that kind of stuff as well. Not to say that any like you know, Origin Energy is going to go bankrupt tomorrow, mm-hmm. but I think some of these guys need be, be, the nature of their business, the nature of their assets. They're making capital investment decisions for for assets that could last mm-hmm. for 20, 30 years, mm-hmm. and and it costs a lot of money. But I think they, <laughs> I, I I would want to be seeing companies that are sort of embracing just that cold hard reality of which way the world is going, mm-hmm. and and doing that kind of stuff. It just means as a shareholder, I think, uh, if they are doing the right thing, um, you you have to be prepared for that mm. long period of investment because that's going to make dividends, which is, you buy these kinds of companies for the dividends largely. Mm. Um, that that is, gonna, that is going to limit your dividend growth, I think. So it's just something to be mindful of. I love that, mate. I can't add much more to that other than to say... Um, it, 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 you need to be careful. If these are, if these are um, regulatory... Um, regulatorily set prices uh, as rates go up, these are normally very, very, very indebted businesses. Mm. So you want to make sure they're going to get meaningful incremental returns on that. Try and understand, this is a future looking one rather than necessarily current earnings, but use the current earnings to ask yourself if and when rates go up, if and when the funding costs of these businesses go up, do they have the pricing power required 
talked about pricing power, I think, in this coming upcoming Friday episode. Um, do they have the pricing power required to actually still be able to support those margins? Some of the regulatory businesses can actually because they'll be allowed to charge more. Others are in a competitive market where they simply won't necessarily have that opportunity. Maybe they all pay, charge a little bit more, um, but rising debt costs really can crimp high, highly indebted businesses with very capital-intensive operations. Mate, speaking of which, let's go to real estate and cap this episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, thank you for spending the time with me, Matt. I appreciate it. And hopefully, uh, I'm sure our listeners have enjoyed it as well. Real estate is a massive, massive area. Uh, we're talking everything from uh, Stockland through to GPT to Lendlease to um, shopping centres, Australasia. Uh, the shopping centre business owns a lot of uh, the old Woolies, Woolies property. Our lifestyle communities, we're talking Aventus Group. Uh, in the large cap space, we're talking about businesses like Goodman Group. We're talking Centre Group, the business that owns Westfields, Australian New Zealand Assets, Dexas, uh, and Mervac, whole lot more as well. Real estate is a, it's, I mean, it's, it's kind of singular, but there's a lot there. There's retail, there's commercial, there's uh, resi- uh, residential, there's so much stuff in the office, of course. How do you think about real estate, man? How would you look at the results they hand down to see how good or bad they really are? It comes back again. I know I keep repeating myself here, but there's, there's <laughs> a different, context, there's on. a difference. Yeah, I, I am. And, and, and I think what, <laughs> what's different here is that there are structural shifts. You know, there mm-hmm. is more working from home isn't just a COVID thing. I think that was always going to be a trend, which is, which was just accelerated. Mm-hmm. Um, I, uh, and just being able to work more remotely, not just at home, but from yeah. the country or up the coast yep. or, or that kind of stuff. Uh, online retail, you know, bricks and mortar mm-hmm. are going, oh, there's always going to be a need. Yeah. We, we like to go to the shops and socialise and be around other people. But yeah. I, I think I think I looking at any of these real estate plays, I, I would be looking at it through that context because it is going to be a challenge. A lot of these, a lot of office space in, in the CBDs of our capital cities are going, mm. you know, they're going to be doing it really tough. Mm. And yes, you can, on one hand, you can and rightly should attribute a good deal of that to COVID. But I think I would also be careful not to assume it would go back to how it was or as good as how it was. I think I think a lot of these businesses will still do very well. They'll be adaptive uh, with with their assets. But I, I think it will be a more challenging period going forward for, for, for some of those big structural reasons. Yeah, I like that. Um, I, I think, yeah, you, you want to try and separate out the structural from the – we normally say cyclical. COVID isn't cyclical, but it's a one-off, right? So mm. strip that out, as we said with other categories as well, and work out what the long-term demands are, the long-term trends are. And some cases you just don't know, and that's okay too. But if you don't know, then you need to recognize you don't know. So if you can't yeah. look at a, re- at, a, at a real estate business and say, I think this is what's going to happen in future, then you've got to ask yourself, should I either remain invested or be invested in this business if I don't have a reasonable assessment of what the future might look like. Mm. And I say might, I don't mean might as in there's a chance of it. I mean, probabilistically, you need to say to yourself, hey, do I feel good enough about the future of this business? And just be careful you don't use your own biases, right? Some people are like, hey, everyone should work from home. Others are like, everyone should get back to the office. If you're either of those two groups, just be mindful that your view and may not necessarily be the solution. Mm. Uh, it may be, it may be, uh, but just, just be careful that you don't let your personal preference impact your investing approach. Because if you're not the same as everybody else, uh, then the everybody else matters more than you do. If you're happy to be the same, then great. But just be careful on that one, that you're you're not taking your own personal views on that. Um, really, really difficult sector because it is so broad. Um, but think about the sort of businesses that it's in. If it's diversified or not, some have fingers and lots of pies. That probably limits your upside, but it also limits your downside. So be mindful of that. And think about for those businesses how the individual pieces are moving. If you've got a Stockland, for example, hey, it's up X or down Y, that's in itself useful. But how the individual parts are operating within there 
super, a bit like online retail and, and, and physical retail when it comes to consumer discretionary businesses. In this case, they were talking about the landlords rather than the businesses, but the same still applies, right? Bulky goods warehouses, very different business to a business like, um, uh, you know, an office block in, in the CBD of one of our, our major cities. So just be, just be mm-hmm. thoughtful and careful about how that plays out. Um, also, again, as going back to debt, please look at the amount of debt these companies hold. Mm. Um, they will all be different. Uh, the returns you get moving forward, maybe they can charge more for rent. But if you're in a business that is already suffering, say you're in a, a commercial office building, um, your cost of funding is going to go up. Uh, is your vac- occupancy going to go up? I don't know that it will. So you may actually get squeezed from both ends. So again, as always, like we talk about inflation, please be careful of debt because debt becomes more expensive for the first time in, what, 10 years, mate, I think. Mm. Um, so as it does... Be careful that you understand the impact of that on the bottom line of the business that you own shares in, or you might look to buy shares in. Nice. Any more on that? Yeah. Uh, no, no, I think we covered it. Beautiful. Fools, I hope you've enjoyed our deep dive, our earnings primer into earnings season. A little bit of a bonus episode. We thought it might be useful to share some of that with you. We hope you've made, we've made your earnings season a little less complicated or maybe we've actually made it more complicated but for the right reasons because we've given you some things to think about that you may not have thought about already. Andrew, thank you for spending the extra time with me. I really appreciate it. We will see you tomorrow for our regular episode and then on Sunday for our regular mailbag. You're not missing out, Phil's. We're just adding an episode this week and we hope you enjoy it. But from me and Andrew, Andrew can say it himself. Until next time, full on. Cheers. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash listener. The Motley Fool operates under financial services licence 400691. Listener.